0: Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. I'm Dr. Neha Bhattuk, WebMD's Chief Physician Editor for Health and Lifestyle Medicine. What do you think about when you hear the words pap smear? You may recognize it as something uncomfortable that happens during a visit to the gynecologist. Maybe it's a test you've never had, but you've heard others complain about. Or maybe you've had questions about it, but never felt comfortable asking your doctor. For many women, cervical health remains an aspect of care that is shrouded in mystery. And under the umbrella of cervical health are serious conditions like cervical cancer. Over 80% of sexually active people, according to some experts, almost 100%, will acquire HPV or the human papillomavirus at some point in their lives, making it the most common sexually transmitted infection. And more than 14,000 women in the United States are diagnosed with invasive cervical cancer related to HPV each year. So, why aren't we talking about this more? Since January is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, we thought it was the perfect time to speak to an expert about cervical health throughout the lifespan. Today, we'll discuss the myths and facts of cervical health, why regular cervical cancer screening is so important and how to initiate a conversation with your healthcare provider when it can feel daunting or when you're unsure about where to begin. We want to demystify cervical health and empower women with resources and knowledge that they need to safeguard their well-being. Here to speak with us is my guest, Dr. Stacey Tanaway. Dr. Tanaway is a board-certified OBGYN in private practice and an expert in adolescent, sexual, reproductive, and menopausal health. She has become a leading gynecologist on social media with the mission to educate women and all people with vulvas to love their bodies through knowledge and empowerment. Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered podcast, Dr. Tanaway.
1: Thanks. It's so great to be here.
0: So before we jump into my questions, I'd like to ask about your health discovery. What was your aha moment around using your social media platform
1: to empower
0: women with reproductive and sexual health knowledge?
1: I think it was probably a series of moments of just realization that we, especially here in the U.S., just don't get a whole lot of education and knowledge based around our bodies, and particularly when it comes to vulvas, vaginas, and sexual health. And I think just Realizing that everyone's baseline is so different and that we really have to start building from the bottom at a good foundation and building up to get to all the knowledge that I want to share. I think that was kind of the biggest aha moment was that everyone wants and needs this information so badly and there's not a good way to give it and there's not a good way for people to find it and receive it. And so that's where I started really exploring my social media platforms to get that information out in a way that people could really respond and understand what we all want and need to understand. So kind of building off of that. So
0: before we even jump into our questions about cervical health and cervical cancer, help us understand what the cervix is. Where is it and what is its function?
1: Yes. So the cervix is basically the opening and the closing of the uterus. And this is up inside the vagina. So at the very, very top of the vagina is where the cervix is. The cervix looks like a small little donut. And in general, it is a closed donut. But obviously, when people are pregnant or going to deliver a baby, that's when the cervix starts opening more to allow that baby to come through. But yes, it's the opening to the uterus and it's at the top of the vagina.
0: And what are some common misconceptions that people have about cervical health?
1: I think probably the most common misconception is how HPV and human papillomavirus relates so intricately to cervical health and also the fact that HPV is just completely ubiquitous in our world and in our environment, and that it is not a rare thing at all. It is exceedingly common. I think that's probably the most important thing that people don't realize when they get an abnormal pap smear screening or a positive HPV or human papillomavirus test that it's everywhere.
0: So let's just dig into that for a second. So HPV, the human papillomavirus. So we know that It's a virus. We know that about 90% of sexually active men have contracted it at some point in their lives, 80% of sexually active women. And like you said, it's ubiquitous. So help us break it down between high risk, low risk. What does it mean when we're talking about these various strains of HPV?
1: Sure. And I'll just throw in there, too, that some experts really believe that nearly 100 percent of sexually active adults will have HPV at some point in their lives. But HPV as a virus is very transient. So we're not always going to catch that even in population studies and data. So, yes, the the data says 80 to 90 percent, but some experts do believe it's nearly 100 percent in someone's lifetime. So high risk and low risk HPV There's about 200 HPV-recognized strains out there, and it's divided into high-risk strains and low-risk strains. Low-risk strains of human papillomavirus are what we relate to with warts, skin warts, or even genital warts. When we think of genital warts, we think of these little tiny skin tag warty projections on the vulva or on the penis or the genital area. And these are usually related to HPV types or strains 6 and 11. Low-risk strains are generally strains that do not lead to things like precancerous or cancerous changes of the cervix or vulva or vagina or penis, as opposed to high-risk strains, which we think are leading to precancerous changes in the different tissues. The most common high-risk strains that we think of are strains 16 and 18, but there are at least 15 other strains that we can identify that are high risk strains that lead to precancerous and cancerous changes of multiple different tissues not just the cervix and genital area.
0: Thanks for breaking that down for us. So now let's go into our discussion around cervical cancer screening. So we know that the majority of cervical cancers are linked with HPV and we recognize that we should be screened and we'll dig into what that looks like, but Most of us have heard about the terms a pap smear. I think more people are hearing about HPV testing, and then people also hear about pelvic exams. So can you help us differentiate between these different tools that we use to help understand someone's reproductive health, sexual health, their cervical health?
1: Yes, because that's also a really common misconception because not every pelvic exam equates to a pap smear screening. They are two separate entities and pap smears are done during a pelvic exam, but not every single pelvic exam. So a pelvic exam is usually comprised of two parts. It's a speculum exam and the speculum is kind of that duck build instrument that we use to insert into the vagina so we can visualize the vagina and the cervix. And the second part of a pelvic exam is what we call a manual exam, where we actually insert one or two fingers into the vagina so we can feel the cervix and use our other hand to palpate the abdomen and pelvis so we can push on and feel the uterus and ovaries. So, speculum and manual exam comprise a pelvic exam. Now, during that speculum portion of exam, if you are having a preventative health exam with your GYN provider, then we may be doing a pap smear screening, which is a swab or sweeping of the face of the cervix to gather some cells to send off to the lab. Now, again, not every pelvic exam has a pap smear with it. We only do pap smears in the office for preventative health reasons.
0: So can you help us sort of understand when screening for cervical cancer should start and what are the components of cervical cancer screening specifically?
1: Yes, so screening in the U.S. right now, our recommendations are we start pap smear screening at age 21, regardless of if someone has started to be sexually active or not. Screening with a pap smear should happen at least every three years if it's normal. After the age of 30, then we have some options and we can do screening for normal results every three to five years, depending on what types of testing that we are doing. So from ages 21 to 30, we're usually just doing the pap smear by itself. After the age of 30, we often combine the pap smear with a specific HPV test and do them both at the same time. Because we believe that if both of those are normal or negative, then that's some extra reassurance that we can space out screening a little bit more if we want to.
0: And the HPV testing that's being done is being done to look for certain high risk strains like we talked about.
1: Correct. It screens the HPV test. It screens in general for a panel of high-risk strains.
0: And so let's talk about women who are sexually active with one partner versus multiple partners. So what would be the recommendation if you're in your 30s and beyond, and you are with one partner versus multiple partners? Does that change the calculus with regards to the PAP and the
1: HPV testing and how often it needs to happen? Not at all. So it doesn't matter how many partners you have currently, you have had in the past, you should get your pap smear screening every three to five years, again, depending on results and what tests are done. The only time that changes a little bit, the options change is after the age of 65. Over the age of 65, you have the option to discontinue pap smear screening if you meet certain criteria. One of those criteria being that you have a long history of normal pap smears on your health record, and the second being that you don't have any new sexual partners. So that really is the only time um, that we consider number of sexual partners in our screening recommendations.
0: And I'm so glad that you broke it down like that, because I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that I see with married women or partnered women where they say, well, I don't really need to have this done as frequently as you're suggesting because
1: I'm not having any new exposures. Right. And we also know that although we think HPV can be cleared completely by the immune system, there is a lot of thought that HPV can also lie dormant or latent in cells and not be present or detectable and then pop up years or even decades later. So an exposure that you're testing positive for might not be a recent exposure. It might even be from your current partner 20 years ago. So HPV is a very, very poorly understood little virus, and we cannot discount, it doesn't act like other sexually transmitted infections. You can't say A led to B the vast majority of the time because of how HPV is so different and how it works in everyone.
0: Yeah, thanks for bringing that point up too, because I think that's another big misconception. And it's a a point that makes a lot of people worry in terms of, did my current partner give me this? Or, Or you're sort of trying to figure out tracing and tracking. How did you get it? Where did you get it? And it's one of those viruses that, like we talked about in the beginning, it's so ubiquitous. It's so common that it's hard to make that connection. And that's why The screening for cervical cancer is so important.
1: Correct. It's nearly impossible to make any of those connections. I mean, obviously, in very certain situations, you can. But in most normal sexually active adults, it's nearly impossible to trace that.
0: So is HPV preventable in any sense if it is so ubiquitous?
1: So yes and no. Yes. And the fact that if someone is 100 percent abstinent, it may be preventable. But we also have had incidences and case reports of people who report completely being abstinent for their entire life and still coming up positive for HPV. So there are some other kind of skin contact sort of mechanisms that this might happen, although it's less likely that people aren't sexually active at all. Again, for normal sexually active adults, it's generally not preventable. We can decrease risk a little bit with a couple of things like HPV vaccination and condom use. But really, if normally healthy, sexually active adults, it is generally not preventable.
0: We've been talking a lot about screening. So that's something you do in the absence of symptoms. So it's just for the general population. There's a variety, like you talked about, of recommendations and spacing for routine screening. What are some of the alarm symptoms or signs that someone should be looking out for that should sort of signal to them, I need to get checked right away. This is not something I should delay.
1: Right, so specifically for abnormal pap smears and HPV, the vast, vast majority have no symptoms, which is why it's so important to go to your annual preventative screening exam so you can stay on time with those pap smear screenings. Now, if we are going to have symptoms, it might come in the form of abnormal bleeding after sex, it may be abnormal discharge of some sort. While those can be symptoms of a cervical abnormality, again, most cervical abnormalities have no symptoms at all.
0: So I think that that's really key and very important. I think it just kind of highlights and underlines what we've been talking about, which is that this is really very silently affecting our bodies until Generally, it's at later stages and harder to treat if you have that cervix that's sort of bleeding after intercourse or the discharge that you may be seeing. That's potentially at a later stage. So we really want to catch cervical cancer as early as possible.
1: I was going to say that, and just so people know that even with those symptoms, there are many other much more common reasons to have those symptoms other than cervical abnormalities or abnormal pap smears. That is probably the most rare cause of any of those other symptoms, even though that's what we discuss as symptoms of cervical abnormalities.
0: So can you talk us through the vaccine? Who's eligible to get it? And when do we start thinking about it? And how has it been a game changer when it comes to cervical cancer?
1: HPV vaccine is a huge game changer. The current version in the U.S. covers nine different strains of HPV. Two strains are low risk, which can lead to genital warts, and the other seven strains are high risk strains that cause up to 90% of cervical cancers and cervical abnormalities. The HPV vaccine in the US is approved from ages nine to 45, so you can get it up to the age of 45. Younger ages is preferable because younger immune systems will build a better immunity, and it is most effective if you get the vaccine series prior to sexual debut. So if you've never been exposed to HPV before, that vaccine is going to be more effective for you. Over the age of 45, you can still get the vaccine. But because it's only FDA approved up to age 45, insurance is probably only going to cover it up to age 45. I definitely have given it to older individuals who really strongly desire to get that vaccine. But it truly is a game changer because it's going to cover 90 percent of high risk strains that lead to cervical cancer. It's going to significantly decrease our risk of abnormal pap smears, invasive procedures, as well as cervical cancer. And not to mention now we know that HPV is also implicated in things like anal cancers, vulvar cancers, and mouth and neck cancers as well. We also believe that that's going to start significantly decreasing the rate of those cancers. We're seeing those improvements in countries that have high rates of HPV vaccination, like the UK and Australia, and we're starting to see some of that in the U.S.
0: Thank you so much for making those points. It's a multi-solving intervention. So I think that's a really important piece of information about that vaccine. So as we're coming to a close in our time together, I'd love to talk about just besides HPV, any other risk factors for cervical cancer or lifestyle changes that people can make to reduce their risk for cervical cancer?
1: Probably the biggest things are HPV vaccination, number one. Number two, don't smoke. Smoking is a big risk factor for cervical cancer and other cancers as well. And condom use would be the other thing that can decrease that risk. Those are really the three biggest kind of modifiable risk factors that we talk about.
0: So I love to close all of my episodes with bite-sized action items that listeners can use to create changes in their lives. So do you have any advice in terms of what listeners can do to advocate for themselves to protect their cervical health?
1: Get your annual GYN preventative exam, whether it's with your primary care doctor or your OBGYN. If you get regular preventative exams, we'll help keep you on time with those pap smear screenings. And the whole point of pap smear screenings and even follow-up exams is to prevent cervical cancer. So our entire goal is to prevent you from getting cancer. I love that. Thank you so much for being with us today,
0: Dr. Tanaway. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is such an important topic, so thanks for covering it.
0: We've talked with Dr. Stacy Tanaway about multiple ways that we can think about HPV and cervical cancer prevention, starting with talking to your healthcare professional about HPV vaccination and then regular screenings throughout your life. To find out more information about Dr. Tanaway, visit drstacyt.com or follow her on Instagram or TikTok, and we'll have information about her social media channels in our show notes. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. If you'd like to send me an email about topics you're interested in or questions for future guests, please send me a note at webmdpodcast at webmd.net. This is Dr. Neha Patak for the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast.